Welcome, church family. I'm glad you're here today. We are going to be jumping into the book of Philemon, a letter from the Apostle Paul many years ago, uh, but I believe it has incredible application today. So before we begin, we're going to start with a word of prayer. Please join me in praying. Lord, thank you for this time that we have together. Let's uh, truly try to honor you, Father, and uh, thank you. Uh, for allowing us to have this time to dig into your word and to truly change, hopefully, the way we think today about our life, about who we are and who you are, and uh, realizing that ultimately you're in control, Lord. We just thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Well, I mentioned uh, our study today is in the entire book of Philemon. It's a very short letter written about 2,000 years ago by the Apostle Paul to a group of people, actually, but primarily to an individual named Philemon. I've entitled this morning's study, Rethinking Our Thinking. I always like to, to come to the text and study it, and as I'm teaching it, for those listening, uh, if you're sitting at home, riding in a car, how will you apply it? How, how will it change your life? We're not just studying to study. And I believe this lesson, if applied, will radically change your thinking in four specific areas. First, I think we will rethink our definition of a successful ministry. Secondly, we should rethink our attitude. How do we come about our attitude or do we even think about our attitude at all? Thirdly, rethink our identity. Who are we? in Christ. And fourth and finally, rethink who is in control. Are we in control? Are we adrift? Or is God still truly in control? So that's how I'm going to break it apart today. We're going to begin in verses 1 and 2. It says this. I'll be reading out the ESV. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier in the church in your house. A famous local preacher here on the radio I heard the other day said, all healthy things, referring to the church, usually grow. As a matter of fact, he made it almost a universal truth. If, if your church is healthy, it will grow. The question is, is that true? As we look at these first two verses, I'm not sure he would consider the church that meets in Fleeman's house a healthy church, honestly. Because if you're meeting in a church that can fit in a house, you're not very big. I would have to say he was partially right. But truthfully, as you examine Scripture and as we dig into these first two verses, I think there should be other indicators to look and to examine a church to find out if they're truly healthy. Let's take a closer look. It says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. You don't become a prisoner for nothing. In most cases, and I believe the Apostle Paul is a prisoner here in Rome because of his faithfulness to the Lord and his, his preaching, regardless who was listening, of a faithful message of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, and it got him locked up. So one of the indicators, I believe, of a healthy church is that you're active. There is always action going on in a healthy church, a church that is faithful. There will always be an outward as well as an inward focus, but it will be comprised of action, of faithfulness to our Lord, not just a club. It continues on and it says this in the letter. It says, And Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved, notice this, fellow worker. They're not sitting around always fellowshipping. I'm sure that was a part of it. 
but they were working hard. And Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, a healthy church is going to be involved. And when you're involved in the ministry in this world for Jesus, it's going to be a battle in the church in your house. There was sacrifice there. It would be much easier to not have a church in your house. And as someone who formerly planted a church and, pl and started a church in his house, I can tell you there's a lot of work and sacrifice involved in that. We were blessed to see our house church grow beyond those walls, but not all house churches do. It is neither a badge of success to be a house church uh, or a, a failure. It's just simply uh, what God provided. And the question is, will you be faithful in what God has provided? And if you are, I believe that's an indication of a truly successful ministry. It will be a ministry that is a fight at times, as well as a joy. But overall, if you're faithful, I believe you have a successful ministry. I would encourage you this morning in whatever ministry you're involved in in service in our church, looking at it through the lens of faithfulness, of action, how are you engaged in that ministry? Or are you just simply showing up and doing your part, so to speak? Next, we go to verse 3. He says this, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I would suggest this passage, beginning in verse 3 all the way through 9, encourages us to rethink our attitude. Frankly, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who talks like that? Well, I've lived quite a few years now, and of the people that I've heard really speak like this, most of them honestly just sound fairly religious and a little goofy, quite frankly, because their life really doesn't match their language. But I have met a few who have actually used words and phrases like this. And remember, the Apostle Paul didn't start out using words and phrases like this. He was arresting people and throwing individuals in jail. He was hardly a guy that was saying grace and peace to you from God our Father. But there are a few people I've run across who truly reflect that in their life and attitude. And then their speech reflects their attitude because they have this incredible daily relationship with God. And their joy, as you'll notice here shortly, is coming from the Lord and not their circumstances. So what else goes into attitude? Verse 4, he says, I thank my God. So he's, he's thankful. And what is he thankful for? What is his focus? I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because, verse 5, I hear of your love and of the faith. So two things, of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus. I don't know what ministry you're involved in, but is that your attitude in which you're thankful for? Are you thankful more for numbers? And numbers are important. They represent lives. But are you thankful for the quality of the ministry, the love and faith that someone has towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints? Verse 6, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. So he's thankful for the sharing of your faith so that it may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us. So it's not just about sharing good theology or doctrine, but it is sharing what this doctrine has produced in them for the sake of Christ. 
for I have derived, verse 7, much joy and comfort from your love. So all of a sudden, his source of joy and comfort is from their love. I got to tell you, my joy and comfort uh, coming up here in a couple days for Thanksgiving, I wish it was from the love of my brothers, but it's going to be probably from a really good meal with my family. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. God gives us many blessings. He gave the Israelites blessings coming out of Egypt. He blesses us with some things of this world for our comfort. But that true joy, that doesn't come from a Thanksgiving meal, nor actually does it come from my family. It comes from the Lord. And then as I experience that love in the Lord through my brothers and sisters in Christ, it becomes even more real and more tangible, if you will. He says his joy and comfort comes from the love of his brothers because, second half of verse 7, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So he's rejoicing and seeing the effects of their love. So his attitude is predicated on the Lord. And then as he, his, his love of the Lord and of his brothers and sisters in Christ continues, he gets to see the fruit of that, and it brings even greater joy and greater comfort. Verse 8 says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, verse 9, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. So he's not a pie-in-the-sky kind of guy. He realizes his circumstances. He's old. He's closer to death than he is birth. He is a prisoner in a Roman prison Life is not easy for him. He could easily be crying out, woe is me. He could be crying out for the injustices done to him. He, he could be accusing the church of not being as faithful or as generous as they should be. He could have a terrible attitude, but his attitude is not grounded in any of that. It's grounded in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, he can say grace to you in verse 3 and peace from God because it's the grace and peace that he's experienced. And he can be thankful. He can derive joy and comfort from the love of others. We have to pause here and say, is that reflective of our life? Is our joy and comfort from our spouse, our job, a a good attaboy at work, success at school, a great career, our looks? The number of things that we derive joy and comfort from, maybe it's just quite frankly, just vegetating in front of a, a computer, just decompressing, so to speak, in the afternoons or evenings when we get home. That's what you look forward to maybe for a little while. If that is, it, it might work for a little bit of time just to kind of not think. But I would encourage you long term, if you really want joy, you need to rethink your thinking. And not thinking isn't an option If you ground your attitude, and I ground my attitude on Christ, everything changes. Well, he's about to appeal to them. Here is the controversial section, if you will, in this book. He says this, and I'll read through it. He says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. So this section, verses 10 through 21, really focus in on, I believe, rethinking our identity. So we've rethought 
what a successful ministry is, rethought our attitude. And I believe this foundationally is rethinking our identity. So he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. Right away, we're getting familiar language that he's already expressed, but he's going to dive into his child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So contextually here, we know we're not dealing with literally a child. We're dealing with what some would call a slave or a runaway slave. Others would call a bond servant. And that's the big debate here. So we'll continue and dig into that a little bit more in just a minute. But rather than dealing with either of those two titles, he describes him as child and whose father I became in my imprisonment. So that's the identity that he's going to put forward to his beloved brother Philemon to whom he's writing. Verse 11, he says, formerly he was useless to you. Notice again the identity here. I don't know about you, but even as a slave or a bondservant or maybe an unbeliever, I wouldn't necessarily think of someone as being useless. That would not be my identity. I don't know about you. As a matter of fact, I would be hopeful that I would be very useful and very productive. And I think we could see that in, in the world today. Anyone uh, at any time has the, the capability of being productive in this world. But he goes to the extreme here of saying completely useless. Why would he do that? He says this. He continues on in verse 11. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. So his usefulness now is not just simply the things of this world, but in serving him and others for the gospel. That is his ultimate identity, his ultimate purpose is Jesus Christ and how he might serve in the kingdom of God. Completely different. When I was growing up, uh, my identity was probably based upon um, my relationships in high school, how I fit in. Maybe that's how you viewed yourself. And then beyond that, in college and ultimately in the workplace, maybe it was a title that uh, I was given when I got my first job or the profession I was in. For years, I was a sales rep in pharmaceuticals, and then I moved into, into management. And perhaps the greatest impact I've ever seen in terms of identity was when I was in that industry. I had one individual literally break down and start crying. He was an older guy. He did not get a promotion out of sales into management, in which his entire life he had spent seeking it just broke him. He believed that once he achieved the title of being a district manager, that was his ultimate goal, and that's what he deserved. And when he didn't get it, it just crushed him. I don't know where you're at today in your identity, but is your ultimate identity in Christ and serving him? That's what Paul puts forward in the case of Onesimus. He says this, backing up to verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on my behalf or your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. Here's the key controversy, if, if you like controversy, verse 16, no longer as a slave, 
In the ESV, it says bondservant. Most modern translations will say slave. The old King James says servant. But more than a bondservant or a slave, as a beloved brother. Once again, he's transferring an identity, whatever that word doulos, the Greek word here, doulos being translated as bondservant or slave means, his ultimate identity is as a brother. And he continues, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me your partner, once again, another aspect of his identity, a partner in the gospel, receive him as you would receive me, changing the identity from a bondservant or a slave to that of a very much similar individual to the Apostle Paul. Verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me your own self. Again, challenging Philemon and others at their church to realize who they are and why they are in the position they're in because of the Apostle Paul sharing the gospel with them. Verse 20, he finishes this aspect of this part of the letter with this. He says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. So what is this great controversy? Well, let's give a a perspective here. It's slavery. Um, It's got to the point that we're about to receive a new translation, actually from John MacArthur and the Lightman Foundation, called the Legacy Standard Bible, in which one of the things in this modern translation that's about to be released is they're going to take this Greek word, doulos, in the entire New Testament, and it occurs a a great number of times, over a hundred times, and flatten it out and always translate it as slave and never as servant or bondservant, as it has been in many other translations. It's based on the New American Standard 1995 translation and also goes back to the original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. So this is a huge issue, and part of the reason why they're doing this is in reaction to our modern culture. Uh, It's believed that sometimes, in some of the translations, there was an attempt to soften the idea of slavery. Slavery was very common in the Roman world, but truthfully, it's been common since almost the creation after the fall. Uh, You see early on in Job and other texts in the Old Testament, specifically Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, long before the Roman Empire, slavery was common, and the Old Testament actually has laws regarding slavery. It is common even today, uh, as late as the 1940s and 50s, there was something known as Operation Paperclip. Our government actually chose to, along with the Soviet Union, go after German scientists that were producing uh, rockets and other technology. They wanted to capture them, and they didn't call it slavery. They called it capturing and enlisting them, but they brought them back to the United States and where they lived out their life serving this country. Many people would say avoiding the justice they deserved. But nevertheless, uh, they were not free to go and to live out wherever they liked. Both the Americans and the Russians did that very thing. There's also an aspect, if you will, of slavery in in the modern um, armies and in our military. 
uh, I learned that uh, our identity, maybe if you have an identity as a Marine, well, that's great, but ultimately, you're government property. Uh, you don't get to do whatever you want. They can order you to your death. So I have a very, very high respect for our service members who make that sacrifice, giving up their freedom so we can have ours. It's an amazing commitment. So there are aspects of slavery that are not monolithic that maybe go beyond what you think of in regards to slavery. Well, specifically, the Bible speaks of some very specific verses that would apply to to help us understand, is the Apostle Paul speaking of a slave or a freedman or a bondservant or a servant? Let's look at Exodus 21.2. It says this, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. That is quite different than other slaves during that day. Leviticus 25.39 verse 40 also speaks to this. It says, If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker or as a sojourner. He shall serve with you into the year of Jubilee. So he sells himself into slavery, not taken into slavery, but he won't be treated as a slave. Verse uh 42 and 43, the same chapter, Leviticus 25, says this, For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. So there were lots of rules, and though they were kind of slaves, they really weren't slaves. They were brothers. And finally, Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 through 17, says this, You shall not Give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. And this has direct application to our verse. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns where it suits him. You shall not wrong him. So we see, and this is just a small uh, portion of what the Old Testament speaks to in regards to slavery. One, there were slaves that were, for lack of a better term, Gentile slaves. Then you had Hebrew slaves. The term slave was applied to them, but they weren't really slaves in a true sense. They were to be freed after a number of years. They were God's slaves or servants, so they weren't supposed to be slaves within his people. Then Deuteronomy specifically says, if a slave escapes, you're not to send him back. He escaped. So there was, a, there was a good thing. So what shall we say here? Is, is this word doulos in Philemon slave, or is it better translated as bondservant? Few points. In favor of the slave translation, one, it's simple. Two, it's a very common interpretation or translation, so much so we're getting a new translation uh, here in the United States, at least. Number three, it doesn't conform to the demands of modern uh, theology or philosophy. It stays too true to the original. It's not influenced, if you will, by uh, common thoughts today. In other words, if it says slave, we're going to go with it and deal with it. We're not going to um, tweak it just for convenience sake. Fourthly, it is widely translated in a number of translations. It's not just uh, one modern translation coming out. And fifthly, Onesimus is a common slave name. Uh, we see it in other writings. I am no expert there, but the research I've done says that it is a common slave name. So we could be dealing with a Gentile slave here. Against this idea of a slave and more in favor of the Hebrew, I believe contextually in verse 16, the last half of it, Let's go there. It says this, both in the flesh and in the Lord. 
So why would that be important? Well, it says in the flesh. What does in the flesh modify? Let's go back. He says in verse 16, no longer as a slave or a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother. And then we get this parenthetical pause. He says, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if in the flesh modifies brother, we could very easily be talking about some Christians who have a Jewish heritage. And this individual was related to them, at least in, in their genealogy. So we're dealing with potentially a Hebrew slave or bondservant, if you will, a Hebrew individual in the flesh. So Paul is sending him back both in the flesh and in the Lord as a brother. So he left a Hebrew slave potentially, or a bondservant, kind of a quasi-slave, comes to know the Lord and comes back in the same manner. He is now just a brother in the flesh as well as in the Lord. So if that's the case, we avoid um, a difficulty in Deuteronomy 23, 15 through 17 that says not to send your slave back to his master to whom he escaped. Now, the Apostle Paul was under the law of Christ. He's not under the Mosaic law. So even if that were the case, he wouldn't necessarily have to obey Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 through 17. But the Apostle Paul in his evangelism tried to become like those under the law in which he was speaking to those under the law and those who were Gentiles. He became like a Gentile. So, he was very much open to trying to evangelize and not to offend in any way possible. So I'm not sure he would have just avoided dealing with Deuteronomy and left that out if he was truly dealing with a slave that was Gentile. But if it, he was a Hebrew slave, he wouldn't have to worry about that. Not only that, but he says, I am sending him back forever. Well, forever... Um, is a long time. So if he is a Hebrew slave, he would have been released in seven years, essentially the, the Jubilee. So the idea is why would Paul speak of forever? Well, if he was a regular slave, he would have been a slave forever unless there was some other um, thing that occurred beyond what was required. But if he was coming back as a Hebrew slave, ultimately, he would have been released. So he emphasizes forever. The question is why. I believe it probably lends to a better interpretation of a bondservant. Lastly, I think he's kind of been, uh, Onesimus, been slandered a little bit. Uh, he talks about in verse 19, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. So there's this impression that maybe Onesimus has stolen something. And to charge someone with being a thief is, is really pretty, uh, pretty rough. I don't know if anyone's ever accused you of being a thief, but that stings. That can really uh, impact your life if, if that gets out there. So I'm not sure we should just automatically brand Onesimus as a thief. However, if he was a Hebrew slave who had just simply been indebted and had to sell himself into slavery because of a debt, that would change the tone quite a bit. There would be a reason for this idea that in verse 18, he says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, there's a debt there, but it's kind of questionable. That's a lot different tone and language than would be used, I believe, if someone actually stole something. 
Um, there would be more to it, I would expect, at least, if someone were a thief. However, if it's just an old debt, that's quite a bit different. And then finally, um, this idea isn't really conforming to any modern philosophy. It's just a, a common uh, usage of the term. So whatever the case, whether we're dealing with a slave or a Hebrew bondservant, his identity is no longer either one of those. And that's the takeaway here. His identity is a child of God who the Apostle Paul became a father of. In other words, he had the opportunity to share the gospel with Onesimus, and he was born again into the kingdom of God. And that's the application here today. Have you been wronged? Does someone owe you money? Do you see yourself as a victim? Do you see yourself as someone who has been deprived of justice? Or do you see yourself as a child of God? The God who created everything and who owns everything. It's a radical change in thinking that gives you and I freedom. We are no longer victims. We are no longer slaves or employees, successful or unsuccessful according to the world standards. We are children of God, brothers in Christ. Huge difference. Rethinking our identity. And finally, it closes with this, verses 23 through verses 25. I believe he speaks of rethinking who is in control. He says, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me. That's quite a, quite a radical shift there. All of a sudden, speaking of accepting this fleeing individual who is either a slave or a bondservant. And he just goes, oh, by the way, prepare a guest room for me. I, I love that. Uh, you can do that when your heart is set on Christ. You can uh, immediately shift there and not have to deal with a great deal of uh, controversy or anger or dispute. He can just move on. He says, For I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. All of a sudden, it's not the Roman system that's in control or anything else. It is God and God acting on prayers. And not acting because we demand it, but because of his goodness and his grace. It says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Wow. There is freedom there. When God is in control in your heart and mind, everything changes. You can rejoice, you can send greetings from prison along with your fellow workers and not be bitter, not be downcast, not be hopeless. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of friends in this world that don't know Christ. And on the outside, they seem joyous, hopeful, and successful. But if you get to know people and you begin talking with them, there is a great deal of hopelessness, a great deal of purposelessness. And as they get older and they begin to face death and sickness, there's a great deal of bitterness and sorrow because this life and this world almost never ends well. And it always ends in death until our Lord Jesus comes back. That's the end. And when people are staring at that, 
that's tough. You really have to ask that question. Is this all that there is? And we, as believers in Jesus Christ, have an answer for that. No. Death in this world is not all there is. There is an eternal life, either eternal separation and judgment or eternal life with Christ Jesus. We have hope. This world is not meaningless. It's not purposeless. We have a purpose, and God is in control. So if we rethink our thinking in regards to ministry, our attitude, our identity, and who is in control, it will change our life, at least for this very hour, this day, and hopefully the rest of our lives. We can rejoice not in this world, but in Christ. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for listening. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, slavery, bond servants, our identity, all of this is incredibly controversial in, in today's world in this country. Help us use this text, our hope in Christ, to be a true witness to those around us. As, as these sorts of topics come up, help us to be good stewards of the word that you've given us to be able to share faithfully in love and not just in doctrine but that doctrine that dwells in us every good thing lord help us to be light in a dark world thank you lord for your mercy thank you for your love and the hope that we have in you in christ's name i pray this amen